Northern Wine Odyssey series is part of Cork Report Podcast Media. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Google Plus, and more. Thank you to Dave Miller for the opening music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. In this episode, we're back talking on the subject of going after jobs in the wine industry. And my guest is a New York City sommelier turned full-time writer, Courtney Shizzle. Hey, Courtney. Hey, Paul. I'm wondering how long it's going to take until one of our cats starts, uh, you know, scratching at the door or just knocks over my microphone. Oh, well, my fiance has strict instructions to keep them in the other room. So hopefully not very, hopefully a long time on my end. I'm a little disappointed. I (laughs) very much enjoy your cat content. Oh, thank you. That's what everyone wants to hear. (laughs) It is. That is the content that everyone craves, whether they know that or not. (laughs) Anyway, what's going on? How is the view of Prospect Park today? It's beautiful. It was a beautiful day outside, even if it's a little chilly. We get a nice view into the park now that all the leaves have fallen, um, which is very lovely here. What else is uh, these days? I know it's a little bit weird for everybody, but what's um, what's your day to day? What's uh, what do you do uh, out in the neighborhood, or I guess mostly indoors at home? Yeah, definitely mostly indoors at home. My long walks around the park have been fewer and further between now that it's getting steadily more freezing. Um, things are good here. I feel like I'm. I'm very lucky in that I was working from home before, you know, the pandemic was even a thing. So this has been my life for the past three years or so. So I'm pretty used to it, but just trying to get exercise when I can, trying to stay hydrated, which is very important and trying not to just become very, very boring. Yeah. What are your, what are your exercise hacks? Like when it's about to, uh, either when it's, you know, pouring rain or it looks like we're going to get some uh, pretty intense snow this week. What do you got? You got like a YouTube go-to? Well, I'm really lucky in that we have a workout room in our new building that is not a formal gym. So it's a little bit safer to, to use. Um, but before we moved into this apartment early on in the pandemic, I was doing these beach body on demand bar workouts like ballet bar um, in a tiny space in my bedroom that could barely fit a yoga mat. So that's my number one hack for anyone who uh, doesn't have a lot of space or equipment in their apartment. I don't know if it's your style though, Paul. I, you know, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I'm ready for the snow. We're, we're going to get it up here too. And so like my car's in the garage when it's pouring rain or freezing or whatever, I do have some like workout equipment and a space heater in the garage, but I'm probably not going to venture out there tomorrow or maybe even the next day. So I've, yeah, I've got my, I've got my, uh, my indoor, you know, my old school hotel routines for when, uh, for when I was having to travel more. And if, uh, if there wasn't a hotel gym or if I didn't feel like going to the gym, you know, got my, my like six square foot, uh, CrossFit, uh, workout ready to go. So I'll revisit that maybe tomorrow. Oh man. You're going to have to share that with me. 
I would be happy to. It's uh it's uh it's a pretty intense 20 minutes and uh you know, you can do it once or twice or whatever. It's important to balance out all the wine. Have have your wine habits changed much since the uh, you know, sort of stay at home life? Not really. Um as I said, I was working from home before, so I think the routine is pretty much the same. I think that just because, you know, we're not getting out as much, you know, I've been more mindful about how much I'm actually consuming and making sure that that's balanced out with a fair amount of activity, you know? Yeah, I I hear it going both ways. I don't know. I think I've stayed pretty even keeled, either stayed the same or maybe even have been consuming a little bit less just because it's in it's you know everything is stressful but in but in some ways at least you kind of you sort of know your foreseeable future so that uh that that has helped me out a little bit i feel okay well great to uh catch up a little bit hear your voice glad that you're healthy and and happy and you as well i have lots of questions i'm i hope i have answers Okay. I want to kind of, I want to go back a little bit to around the time when I would have met you. And I believe that was before you were working in restaurants full time. And I think you were still working for a PR firm. Does that sound about right? Probably. I was trying to recall when we met for the first time, but that sounds about right. Probably at a tasting group, I'm guessing. I want to say around 2013. Yeah, that would have been right around, like, that was the last year that I worked in PR. Okay. Did that involve beverage at all? It did. So I really didn't know anything about wine or beverage other than, you know, Yellowtail and Franzia at the bodega or whatever. Um, But I landed at a PR firm that specialized in wine and wine regions. Okay, so were you learning on the job at the time? Totally. Um, I started working in wine PR in 2011, which was the same year I graduated from college. So I was 21, and I didn't even know how to hold a glass. I remember my first wine tasting, my boss having to teach me, this is how you hold a glass, this is how you swirl a glass. They were telling me all the things I smelled in a wine, and I was like, it just smells like wine. I don't know what you're talking about. So that that's actually, this is kind of cool. You're sort of like a triple threat here because I think beverage PR is sort of another angle that maybe we don't always remember or think of. And so in some of these talks that I've done over the summer, whether uh, and up to now, whether in podcast form or on Instagram live, I'm really trying to, to speak to people who have gone after a certain kind of work that maybe we don't always remember is out there. So so in your case, writing, right? Because we obviously have a lot of peers from the restaurant world that are unemployed right now. So, you know, if there's anything that uh, that I can do with the time that I have on my hands, you know, I'm happy to, to, you know, get interesting people like you to talk about the work that you do and how you went after it. So, even before we get into restaurants or writing, how did you end up with that PR firm that focuses on beverage? I think it was really luck. You know, I feel really bad for the 
kids that are graduating from college this year because I thought I had it bad back at the very tail end of the last recession trying to find a job because I applied to over a hundred different communications positions before I landed at this specific PR firm, which was called Cornerstone Communications and is no longer in business. Um, but I just happened to land at a firm that specialized in wine because I really loved cooking and food at the time. And I think that was where the synergy kind of, you know, lay. And that's why I, thank goodness, got hired there. Okay. And you did that for at least two, three, maybe four years before you started at l- dipping your toe into wine bars and restaurants. What was that timeline exactly? I think it ended up being around two and a half years from the fall of 2011 to the spring of 2014, essentially. Um, And during that time, I had the opportunity not only to learn about wine and to take different wine classes, but also to work my way up in the firm a little bit. So you made a decision at some point to leave PR and go into restaurants full time. What was, what was attractive to you about the restaurant world and what was the first full-time restaurant gig? So for me, I was finding myself as I was working at this firm and, and taking my, my classes and getting to meet a lot of cool people that I really wanted. I didn't just want to, pitch to or liaise with these writers and these restaurant people and these retailers who were very involved in the wine industry. I really wanted to be one of those people. I remember telling one of my colleagues, I don't want to write about the third or I don't want to, you know, liaise with the 30 under 30. I want to be the 30 under 30. Um, Because when you're working in PR, you have a great opportunity to work intimately with different wineries and wine regions, but you are essentially communicating their message. You're not communicating your own message. And for somebody that was so new in the wine business, I wanted to see what it was like on the other side of the coin and see what it was like to be able to communicate my opinions about different wines and to just broaden my wine experience. So I actually didn't just go into restaurants. I got a part-time job at Terroir in the city. I also was working part-time in retail at Vine Wine in Williamsburg. And that's actually when I started writing on the side. Okay. So you're, you're back and forth between Terroir and Vine. Mm-hmm. What? So during that time, you start, I imagine, pitching editors. Now, did you have contacts already from your PR job or did you literally just, I don't know, were you interested in writing? Had you been blogging? Do you keep a journal? What was it that made you want to write and how did you initially begin? It was a combination of a lot of dead ends and also a little bit of luck. Um, I had always been a person who loved writing. I probably started and ended, you know, 20 different blogs in like two years. Um, 
But when I was leaving the PR firm, I sent a goodbye email essentially saying that I was going to be working in restaurants, in retail, and freelance writing, even though I did not have any freelance writing gigs yet. And an editor emailed me back and said, if you ever want to pitch me, let me know. And that's essentially how I got my first writing job. And I suppose job should be in quotes because they didn't pay me. So I was essentially writing for free for a website called The Daily Meal. And I was kind of weighing the options between having a blog that not many people would read or writing for free for a publication that had a very large readership and would give me a byline in my portfolio. And having that first byline really helped me be able to pitch to other editors and say, look, I've already been published in this other place. Do you remember the first story that you wrote that you were paid for? That I was paid for um, was probably for Drink Me magazine. And I can't remember what the topic was, but I know that I wrote a piece on Portuguese wine while I was there because I did a harvest in Portugal that year. And I was super obsessed and still am obsessed with Portuguese wine. Okay. I want to come back to, to writing and, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, your time sort of working at least full time in restaurants while writing on the side. So you, at some point, joined up with USHG and you were at Marta. Am I forgetting about any sort of like four to five day a week, full-time gig at a restaurant prior to Marta? Not really. That was my first real full-time sommelier gig. I worked for a wine bar called The Camlin in Williamsburg. Um, I helped them open up. Uh, for a few months. But then once I got the job at Marta, I left and that was my first, you know, solid full-time job. So let's talk about Marta because that was a pretty splashy opening. I actually trailed there way, way back with Jack shortly after it opened. This was when I had I had gone back to to Michigan to do some, to, to be with my family for the, for the summer. And then needed a job immediately when I got back. So, um, you know, was just looking around and that was one that I had trailed for, for a sound position there. And I ended up going and working as a server at Gramercy Tavern. So I always have wondered what it might have been like for me had I, had I stayed at that restaurant. And I, I loved that restaurant. I say loved because I don't know who the hell knows what any restaurant is going to be when we get to the other side of this. But, um, Hopefully it will it will be that same place that I think you and I both loved. Um, that was a great concept. The list was cool because it was a an opportunity to really do a deep dive into Italy, and then of course a great champagne list, and a little bit later on, sort of a reserve uh, list of of other cool stuff. Uh, tell me about your time there. I loved my time at Marta. Um, I sometimes wish I could go back there because I think it was a little bit of a 
golden age, not only of Marta and USHG as a whole, but also, you know, for my career, I was learning so much and I was surrounded by such a great team. Um, I truly don't know why Jack Mason hired me. I think I freely volunteered in my interview that I would rate my own wine knowledge of Italian wine at a six. Like no one asked me that. I just said it. I don't know why. Um, but it was, it was great. It was very fast paced, um, which is both stressful and a great opportunity because you get to talk with a lot of different guests about what they're, um, looking for. And you also get to taste a lot of different wines. We had such a robust Italian wine and champagne program. And I knew relatively very little about Italian wine and champagne before getting there when it comes to the specific producers and the the specifics of everything. Um, so it was such a great learning opportunity. And for someone who had very little restaurant experience in general, it was a great insight into how restaurant operations look in general. And what made you go after Marta? Were you interested in Italian wine and champagne specifically, or was it more the position, you know, at a great restaurant group? I would say it was the latter. Um, I, you know, was working at the Camlin at the time, which was a great place, but it didn't quite have as robust of a list as I really wanted to sink my teeth into. And I think I just had one difficult night at work. I went on Craigslist and I saw that there was an, a sommelier opening at Marta. And I remembered that it had, it had opened while I was abroad. And I had heard that it had this phenomenal wine program, especially a phenomenal champagne program. So I applied blindly and just lucky for me, I happened to get an interview and then get hired there. That's funny what you mentioned before. I think that we've probably all had those nights where you have a bad service and you go home and you, you immediately check to see what job openings there are. How many times did that happen to you? I can think of two or three for me. Oh, absolutely. I would just like go on a rampage and apply to everything at once. (laughs) I remember being pissed off about something. I don't even know where I was working at the time and went home. And I think I applied for a job at like the North End Grill. I think I applied for a job at (laughs) Reynard that was open at the time. Uh, (laughs) Probably more. So Marta... And, and, you know, there's a, I guess we're lucky in New York City, there there are quite a few restaurants where you can really get a good education in Italian wine. And I'm, I'm sort of jealous of you and my other friends who, um, who, who were able to do that. I mean, the... Hearth had a, had, a, had a pretty great list of, of classic Italian producers, and I never went deep into it when I was working there either as a server or manager, because I just, that time, that entire time for me was just 100% about Riesling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like Surprise. looking back, yeah, I know. <laughs> looking back, I wish I would have sort of, uh, you know, spent, spent some more time um, really getting into to the Italian stuff there and then never worked at Mylino or Marta or Maria or any of those great places. But would you say that Coming out of Marta, did you feel somewhat of a relative genius on the subject of Italian wine? 
I don't know if I was a genius on the subject of relative, relative expert, let's say. You know what's funny is modest. that I I admitted to many people while I was working at Marta that I wasn't a huge fan of Italian wine. I wish I was working with French wine. I wanted to learn more about Burgundy and Bordeaux, and I loved Beaujolais. Um, and I was just so over Italian wine, maybe because, you know, I, I was there for more than two years, I think. So I knew most of the list. But since I left, I love it so much. I totally. Um, miss the opportunities I had to taste all of these wonderful producers. And I really underestimated to myself just how much diversity and how many interesting things there are in Italy. Essentially, I took it for granted. Um, and I will say that when I was taking, when I still, when I take different exams and things like that, um, I'm very grateful for the amount of Italian producers, Italian subzones, those little um, DOCs and DOCGs that you might not study, you know, on an everyday basis that I got, you know, exposed to from being at Marta. Marta and Mylino and later when Vini Friedi opened the bar um, in the same hotel as Marta, which I loved. I mean, those were just great places to go. And when you think about it, I mean, I know this sounds like a lot of money and it is, but when you consider what you're getting for a few hundred bucks, you could drink you know, Prototuri and Maccarini from iconic vintages, 67, 71, all the different 80s vintages. And when you think about Burgundy or Napa from iconic vintages, I mean, those wines would have been 10 times that price. Totally. And when you think back to that handwritten reserve list that we used to have, I was the one who wrote that whole thing. So when we expanded our reserve list and had something like 300, 400 selections, maybe I'm exaggerating, it felt like that much. I really hated having to rewrite that whole thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, once we once we get to the other side of this, I do hope that those opportunities for for others and and for me, selfishly for me, I want to go back and drink more, you know, 67s and 71s at uh, Marta and Mylino. So man, what a cool time. And I don't think I took it for granted. I think I, I think I spent way too much money at those places. <laughs> but during that time, you're also starting to get a little bit busy as a writer while you were working at Marta. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Now, Vine Pair, that happened shortly after Marta, at least when you were there full-time, but had you started writing freelance for Vine Pair while you were at Marta? I did. I don't remember exactly when I started writing there, maybe six months into me working at Marta, but it was so helpful to write for a consumer-driven website while working on the floor of a restaurant because I got to hear what people were asking every night. If a lot of people were asking for Montepulciano, well, that was a great story to pitch. Or if a lot of people were asking about, you know, how to open a really old bottle of wine that they don't think is good anymore, that was a really great story to pitch. And I think that really got my foot in the door of writing for Vine Pear. So you mentioned Portugal earlier. Mm-hmm. You've written quite a bit on Portugal. 
were there did you use that sort of as your I'm a, I'm something of a subject matter expert on Portugal did you pitch yourself as you know somebody who knew something uh, or who knew a lot about any other areas of the world like did you use did you give yourself a beat essentially when you were learning to pitch editors early on not really and i still don't and and people ask me that a lot they ask me if there are any specialties i have um but i didn't consider myself maybe i'm underestimating myself i don't know i didn't consider myself enough of a subject matter expert to really pitch myself as that and at this point i think my biggest subject matter expertise is just on matters relating to the wine trade um, i love writing for consumer publications but i've found myself in this niche where i'm writing a lot of pieces that are geared towards the trade. And I think that's because I've been there and that's what I care about. Okay. So after Marta, am I remembering correctly? Was that Olmsted for a minute? I actually went to Dirty French before I went to Olmsted. Okay. That's and I right. worked at I worked at Dirty French for three months. Um and I'm very grateful for those three months because that's where Fun, I met get my back fiance. Into French wine. Yes, and that's also where I met my fiance. So it was all worth it, <laughs> no matter. Guess, guess that's what important. <laughs> and it was great that I got to get back into French wine there. It was a little bit of a different vibe, and I think that's when I realized just how different. USHG was from other restaurant groups because, you know, I had been at Terroir and then I had been at USHG and I think those have kind of a similar ethos and going to another restaurant group that was very much not about that was really a shock to my system, I guess I would say. So what was, so let's see, Dirty French, that is Terezi Carbone, major food group, right? Major food group. Yeah. What uh, what were some of the differences? I, I had a similar uh, feeling when I went from uh, USHG to Crafted. So I'm curious to hear like what, I don't know, either what were some maybe cool new things or good things in addition to some things that maybe weren't as cool as USHG. Well, the cool new things were that people went to Dirty French to like spend money. And that was the place where I really started learning how to sell wine because I had sold wine at Marta, but a lot of things are a really good deal. So it's not difficult to do that. At Dirty French, the prices were high. They knew the prices were high and the experience was worth it for a lot of people. So I got to sell higher end wines. I got to push myself out of my boundaries, you know, not just selling under $200 bottles, but selling $500 bottles, selling $1,000 bottles. And I think that was really valuable. Um, it was also just kind of a fun environment to work in. People liked you know, people liked dining there. It was kind of a destination dining spot. Um, the things that I didn't like so much were that because it was a destination dining spot, because it was an expensive restaurant, you don't get regulars as much. And I really missed that about my time at Marta because on my last night at Marta, I think I had six different tables of regulars who came to send me off. And you didn't really get to cultivate that relationship at Dirty French. 
Yeah, I, you know, my, my thinking back to USHG versus something like Crafted Hospitality. And again, there's quite a bit of crossover there because of Tom Colicchio and his, you know, relationship as the opening chef to Gramercy Tavern once upon a time. But I, USHG is in a, is a very emotional gig. Like, yes, Gramercy Tavern was draining. I mean, that, that was a service that rocked you. Mentally, physically, everything. What I appreciated about Crafted Hospitality was it was just a more normal night of restaurant service. And kind of like what you mentioned at both Temple Court and Craft, people came there to spend money. And you, you know, on every second table at Temple Court, there was a three digit bottle of wine. And, right. and then Craft even more intensely so. Without some of the, you know, just pressure of having to perform for the the VIPs who, you know, may have been regulars for decades. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm sort of with you. It was um, uh, th- those experiences are definitely different. USHG is wonderful, but certainly a grind. Definitely. Okay, so. Olmstead for a brief minute before, and that was when you decided you wanted to give it a go full time as a freelance writer. Correct. That is actually when I decide. Oh my goodness! I'm sorry, my phone just rang. Um, Oh my God. I don't even know what's happening over here. Okay. Sorry. I ruined the whole podcast. No, you didn't. You're fine. (laughs) Um, So that is actually when I decided that I was going to um, go and write full time, but I wasn't freelance. I was an employee at Vine Pair. Okay. Okay. So that entailed essentially, so you're only writing for Vine Pair during that time, right? You weren't, you weren't pitching anybody else. Exactly. You went to the office five days a week, basically as a staff writer. Yes. I was the tastings editor over there, but I was essentially a staff writer who also reviewed wines. So what is that like in comparison to essentially freelancing, working from home? What is that feeling? What is that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're almost like in a newsroom atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a little more toned down than a newsroom because it's a lot smaller and we're not reporting on like everyday news or reporting on beverage, but it's definitely more fast paced because we were publishing, I think, four articles a day. So that means as a staff writer, as one of two staff writers, you need to have a lot of ideas every week. And it was a combination of bigger, more reported stories and lower lift, you know, this is um, what Nebbiolo tastes like kind of stories. Okay, so you you're essentially writing for total beginners, but also you can angle 
some things toward more high level or even trade. Yeah, absolutely. At that time, we were really um, aiming more at consumer, um, a consumer audience. But I also got to work on some really fun pieces that, you know, applied to sommeliers, for instance, such as the pressure to spend a lot of money on wine to keep up and to taste a lot of things when you're working on a restaurant salary, like salary in quotes, you know what I mean? And so I think I'm remembering the timeline more correctly now. You went back to restaurants after Vine Pair full-time, right? Is is that when you went to Olmstead? I didn't. No, I I was at Olmstead very briefly before I went to Vine Pair. That was in the summer. Yeah, before. That was in the summer of 2017. Um, And I kind of just decided it wasn't a good fit for me. And I knew there was an opening at Vine Pair, which is where I was already writing part-time. So it kind of just made sense. And then, so you did that full time and and then basically was it from there that you said this, this is cool, but I can, I can do this. I'm going to go for, I'm going to go, go for freelancing and write for other publications as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a similar thing to when I left PR in a way, you know, VinePair was the first place that I was really consistently writing all the time, every week. And I wanted the experience to, you know, get out there and write for some publications that had other targets or, you know, that just had a different style because I wanted to have a more robust portfolio. So what is, tell me about what it's like to have to write one or more stories a week for, for a publication like Vine Pit, which I imagine you had to do probably not less than one. It's pretty tough, isn't it? I mean, I still do that now. So it's, it's kind of like having a college paper due every day, um, which I'm a huge procrastinator. So don't ask me why I chose this as my job, but, um, those deadlines come around fast, don't they? They do come around fast, <laughs> um, but especially at somewhere like Vine Pair, where, where we were putting out a lot of content, um, it's just about you know finding the time to balance reporting. So you're interviewing people, you're researching, and actually writing and turning in your articles. Something that I appreciate about Vine Pair is I feel like either when I'm reading articles or listening to the podcast or whatever. It seems to me that they <clears throat> are clever at using data, maybe more so than other publications. Am I wrong? Or were they were they pretty good about really analyzing data early on and sort of reporting on, you know, those sort of trends of the beverage industry, which I think is really effective and really interesting, more so than just anecdotal journalism. You know, I think that that is something that has come with time from VinePair, and they've certainly ramped up their um, data analysis and also data collecting, which is so valuable to the industry because 
you know, they have a huge readership and they can look at what people are searching for and what people are asking about on a really broad scale. Um, but I think it's something that has come with time. It may not have been as much of a focus when I was working there full time, but I've noticed in the years since that they have been providing a lot more data and also synthesizing that data and distilling that data um, and providing their own take in a real way in, in the past year or two. So I want to go back to your early days of pitching editors. There's there's a lot of, of restaurant and wine professionals who have blogged a little bit or even have been paid to write a little bit here and there. But certainly one of the struggles is getting a story accepted and even just making a little bit of money. I would imagine that you have some experience or went through some frustrating times when it comes to pitching editors. What is, how did you keep at it? Because, you know, with my little bit of experience pitching editors, it is a grind. There is so much rejection and just to keep going takes, you know, a lot of backbone. How did you do it? I mean, I'm still doing it all the time and you're right. It's very difficult and it's a lot of rejection that you have to deal with. Um, and you just have to pick yourself up and keep going, not take it personally. You know, sometimes you pitch an idea to an editor and they already have an idea like that in the works, or maybe they don't have a budget for very many freelance writers, or maybe your email just gets lost or they're not interested. And you have to understand that every editor also has people that he or she report to as well. And they have to make sure that they are publishing stories that align with their vision for the publication as well. Um, the biggest thing I had to learn when I left the restaurant floor was that even though I knew a lot about wine and sommeliers who might want to pitch editors know a lot about wine and beverages, if you're going to write a story for a publication, in most cases, you have to take yourself out of it because essentially you need other sources who are going to provide quotes that give you real information about the piece. You may know a lot about, I don't know, Sangiovese or something like that, but that's not what the editor necessarily wants. They want to hear a Tuscan winemaker talk about Sangiovese or a winemaker in California that's experimenting with it, talk about it. Um, so I think taking yourself out of it was the hardest part for me. I want to ask you a little bit about wine criticism and what you think of it in, in sort of the traditional sense. Um, you know, not necessarily point scores or anything like that, but reviews of individual wines. I always found that those were very helpful to me, especially when I was working the floor of restaurants in a place like Gramercy Tavern or Rouge de Mat. I mean, those were big wine lists with a lot of old wines, old vintages that you don't get the opportunity to taste regularly or even at all. So one trick that I used that I found effective was I would go back and look at old Wine Advocate reviews, whether they were by Parker or David Schildnack or Antonio Galloni or even Spectator or later on Venice. And some of those people 
were good tasters and pretty interesting writers too, whether or not we're going to look at the score, like who cares? Just the writing and their description as to how the wine was evolving, how it might age, when it might be best to drink it was very helpful for me selling wine in those restaurants. And I feel like people our age or younger just are so turned off by those publications. I don't know how they go on the floor and sell those wines that you've never tasted without researching them in some way. And that was very helpful for me. I'm curious what you think of that style of wine criticism and if you ever acknowledged it. That is a really good point. I mean, because I largely specialize in online writing, um, writing reviews of wine or reading reviews of wine isn't super relevant to me. But when I am researching a wine, even when I'm just buying wine for myself, um, it's really helpful to be able to have someone else's perspective on what the wine actually tastes like. You know, is this a very modern style of wine or is it a leaner style? Um, does it actually see oak or not? You know, these are all things that are going to help inform me. And then in turn, when I was on the floor, inform the guest and make sure that they're drinking something that they like. Um, so I think it is valuable in that sense, but I think often people can't get past the score. You know what I mean? Um, that's kind of what they focus on. And if, if we could just focus on the description of what the wine tastes like, that would be far more relevant to us, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think back, I remember it was my first night on the floor at Temple Court and I had been studying the wine list and there were some verticals of Ravino and Chateau Moussard. And my first night, it was kind of like beginner's luck. I had, I had a good night. I got an 06 Ravino MDT on a table and like an 81 Moussard on another table. And I was able to do that because I read those old reviews in the Wine Advocate, literally in the evil Robert Parker wine journal. <laughs> night one, a good night for me. My boss is impressed. Etc. Etc. I just it's it's tough for me to 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 relate to to our peers who just refuse to acknowledge those publications. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a place. I think there's a place for them. Um, I just think that people have been so polarized by you know the notion of a score in general um, that it kind of creates this love or hate relationship with it. Interesting. Okay. You, so I, I've been thinking since, we, since I knew we were going to talk today over the last couple of days, I was trying to think of other restaurant sommeliers who have legitimately turned to writing full time. So I'm looking at your bio. You have written for 750 daily wine enthusiast, vine pair Forbes, the Somme journal, the Tasting Panel Magazine, Beverage Media, Wine Searcher, ESPN, and I and I know there's more. And probably <laughs> that's I mean it's that's a really obviously impressive list. And there's just not a lot of people who have been able to successfully make that jump from the restaurant floor to writing full time. Like I think of Kelly White as being one of them, and I think her writing Definitely. is wonderful. Um, but I don't know. It's like it's like you and her. What what are some pointers that you might be able to give to someone of any age who's considering 
I mean, there are so many people right now that are thinking about what they're going to do when we get out of this. What are some pointers you would have for those people? I would say make sure you know, make sure you know the publications that you're pitching. If you want to start writing about wine, make a list of the dream publications that you would like to write for. Then do a little bit of research, see if they welcome pitches, and see kind of what the tone of their articles are. Because something that I would pitch to 750 Daily is not necessarily the same thing that I would pitch to Wine Enthusiast or to Guildsome or to, um, you know, to Vine Pair. Um, so that's really important. Trying to get in touch with the right person is really important, which is just easier said than done. Um, but the good thing about working, if you already work in the wine industry, is that you probably have a lot of connections. So you can reach out to people. You can say, do you know who you know does the assigning at this publication? Do you know of any publications that welcome freelance writers? Um, and that's a really good first step to get an introduction. Um, and then from there, you have to make sure that the ideas that you're pitching are not only unique and relevant, but that you have kind of a good start to the thesis or to the reporting there. Because as I was kind of talking about before, you know, a million articles have been written on Chardonnay, right? So just writing about, you know, why Chardonnay is not what you think it is because everyone associates it with big, buttery California Chardonnay. Like that story has kind of been written before. But if you want to, you know, take a new lens and say, you know, this is a couple of years back, you know, organ vintners are newly focusing on Chardonnay because, you know, they think it's the state's next, you know, high quality grape after Pinot Noir. That's an interesting story, especially if no one else has reported it before. And like three years ago when I did, it was fairly new, maybe not anymore. Um, but look for places where you can craft a unique angle and a unique perspective on things. Um, right now, a lot of- You have to be the, essentially like, you sort of have to be the only one who could write the story when you're pitching an editor, Right. Sort of, not really. Um, if you um, are at, I don't know, if you're at a retail shop or you're at a restaurant or you're like, you know, not to give away one of my ideas, but like if you're noticing that there's a lot of co-ferments coming out, right, um, where people are fermenting white and red grapes, look into why that might be. Has anyone else written about it? Do you know any winemakers who are doing it? maybe ask them why they are doing it. And that's an interesting story because you can say winemakers in Portugal and Australia and California are all now making co-ferment wines. It has a history, um, you know, going back to looking at say like, you know, Northern Rhone or something like that. Why is this now a thing again? That's an interesting hook and something that you can report out by talking to a bunch of different winemakers. So now that you're not in a shop or at a restaurant, how do you do that? How do you keep up sort of with the trade, with what is fashionable, with what is trending? Like, how do you determine that, okay, you want to write about co or you want to write about whatever, you know, might 
be trending next that uh, that somebody else might not know about? I have to say it's really hard since, you know, things have really slowed down or shuttered with the on-premise because I got a lot of my ideas by going to different restaurants, going to different wine bars, seeing what was on the list and seeing if I noticed trends. Um, I remember going to um, Company and Jim Sly was pouring all of these California Chenin Blancs. And I was like, okay, I recently read that Chenin Blanc used to be like bulk planted, why is it now a high quality thing? And just that little spark can lead you down a rabbit hole and can create an intriguing piece. Um, For me also, buying wine at retail um, has provided me with those insights as well. Because again, in a similar vein, I kind of see what is happening and then it sparks ideas for me. Um, I also get a lot of PR pitches, um, which sometimes you know, 80% of the time it's about a new release and it's another California Cabernet Sauvignon, which is wonderful, but I just can't think of a unique angle for it. But every once in a while, you'll notice a theme or something will spark an idea. Okay. Speaking of Cabernet Sauvignon, (laughs) uh, I think I once pitched you uh, on the idea of Long Island red wines with 10 plus years of age. And you did come to that lunch. And, and I wrote about it. And you wrote about <laughs> it twice. <laughs> it's true. That was that was a good day for both of us. But that was like a great example of, you know, I've had Long Island wine many years ago, but this specific moment to taste aged Long Island wine and to see what that quality was like really inspired me to try and pursue it from every angle. Um, so that's how I got two pieces placed, you know? Yeah. I want to, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So, because this is on this podcast and at, at Cork Report, I mean, we, we do a lot of, uh, we produce a lot of content about New York wine mm-hmm. and that, uh, that particular lunch and which I repeated again the following year. And not only did we do a lunch, we also did a consumer dinner on the same subject that evening and Tom Colicchio cooked at it because he has a place out in the North Fork. So like North Fork agriculture, very important to him. And so when I look back at that, I was like, well, that was pretty cool that, you know, that subject produced a dinner with someone like, you know, chef Tom Colicchio cooking on, uh, otherwise on a topic that I feel like many in our, many of our peers are, and, you know, maybe it's not fair for me to say this, but those wines just don't get the same kind of attention as California or Bordeaux, obviously. And you pointed that out in both of your stories. What do you remember without, without like having to go back and read those stories? Do you remember your sort of just reaction to, to drinking those wines that day at that lunch? Were you surprised? Did they over deliver? Did, did they meet what you, kind of thought they were going to be? I was super surprised. Um, I don't know if I had many expectations going into the lunch, but, you know, for me, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of young, big, not that Long Island wines are, are very big, but long, you know, young, big red wines. That's just not my 
style. It's not really what I, you know, drink on my own time. But being able to taste these wines with age, they unfolded to really reveal like how dynamic they were. It wasn't just fruit and, you know, undertones of herbs or mushroom or earth. It was also really dynamic acidity. It was also really wonderful texture. And I thought that these wines were just so intriguing. And I feel like probably most people drink them young, so they don't get to see that side of it. Yeah. So I want to sort of finish on what your thoughts are for going after the work when it when it comes to writing. And I, and I know you've you've studied a lot, you've taken a lot of exams, but I I refuse to believe that that is the reason why you have been as successful as you have. I think that there's something that's a little bit deeper. I think that you have a skill set that has enabled you to connect dots and recognize angles and and that's it seems to me like how you've been able to go after this career. And I think that it's important for for people who want to get into this to realize that recognize the job that you want to do and go after it and don't dwell too much on exams or I don't know, even master classes. Traveling certainly important and it helps, but probably, you know, not necessarily a deal breaker if you want to write. What can you say as to your sort of just overall thinking when it comes to really attacking the job? Well, I think when it comes to writing, especially freelance writing, as we said, you have to kind of be relentless. You know, if you don't hear back from an editor, follow up, pitch them again. And I'm not always good about that. I have a lot of colleagues who are far better about that than I am. Um, But that's really important in terms of actually going after the job. Um, I also, you know, as you said, it's important not just to settle for the surface level idea. You have to go beyond what's on the surface. So it's not just about why, you know, this grape variety makes such interesting wines. It's about what are the market conditions that are making it more popular now? Like, why are we seeing it now? Why are more winemakers catching on? And I think that for someone in the trade, you have a really valuable position because again, you're not seeing it from the outside. You're fully immersed in it. Um, And I'm really glad that I had the experience in the trade to kind of go beyond and think about all the factors that are making certain wines or certain regions or certain themes popular or that are really affecting the wine industry as a whole. Um, I've written a lot this year about hard seltzer and ready to drink cocktails. And I never thought that I would write about those things because it's not always what I'm drinking at home. But there was a lot of data that was really interesting to me from a consumer perspective. And I thought that the industry needed to look at that further. Um, So going beyond the surface level idea, and then also you got to have writing chops. And if you don't have them naturally, work on them. Um, study what AP style is versus Chicago style. Um, study how 
journalism is traditionally reported because all of those things are very important in order to get your messaging across to an editor. I love that. I mean, writing is a skill and it is something that can be learned. So that's, I'm really glad you pointed that out. So what, what are your goals? What, uh, what do you aspire to? Do you, are you dying to have a a byline somewhere in the New Yorker or do you, would you love a staff position again somewhere? This is a super hard question because, you know, my whole career, I have, wanted a lot of different things revolving the wine industry. I was never really content, you know, just working on the floor or just writing. So even now I'm not just writing trade stories. I'm writing consumer content and I'm doing copywriting and I write some, you know, PR and marketing copy. Um, I do a little bit of education. So for me, having a career where I can successfully do all of those things and also bring in enough income to survive is success for me. Um, I want to keep reporting better stories. I want to um, keep reporting stories that are really pertinent to our industry, especially now because it's such a difficult time. Um, And sure, I would love to you know, get some more bylines, but I want to keep reporting stories that I'm passionate about and that can help other people. Well, thank you for, for sharing all this, for talking to me. I know that there's a lot of people out there who, who want to create content and you just gave us a boatload of information as to, to how to get started and to how to develop and really go after that. So thank you for talking to me. And anyone who wants, you know, to go further into this, you are more than welcome to email me through my website. I am happy to provide insight to anyone who's looking to get into writing. And I would like to see a book by Courtney Shizzle someday. Hey, help me figure out what it would be about and then we'll do it. (laughs) Okay. I got some ideas. Well, thank you, Courtney. Uh, It has been really wonderful to watch you prosper in this field over the years. And I would love to have you back and we'll talk about that book. Definitely. Thank you. You're welcome. Great to catch up. Talk to you soon. Thank you again to guitarist Dave Miller for our intro and outro music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com wherever you purchase or stream music. We'll see you next episode.